Wes Anderson has been making movies for over two decades, but until the Grand Budapest Hotel, his films have only been modest commercial hits. Yet he attracts Oscar winners such as George Clooney, Meryl Streep, Kate Blanchett, Gwyneth Paltrow, Natalie Portman, Gene Hackman, Tilda Swinton, Frances McDormand, Angelica Houston, F. Murray Abraham and Adrian Brody. Then he has Oscar nominees Saoirse Ronan, Bill Murray, Ed Norton, Willem Dafoe and Jude Law. And not to mention megastars such as Ben Stiller and Bruce Willis. How does Anderson convince them all to appear in films that they know won't bring them big paychecks? What Anderson offers is so different, so daring and so unique, those stars know his films have a chance of being remembered long after the opening weekend and valued more deeply than their box office returns. Anderson is a graduate of the University of Texas, where he studied philosophy, and it was there that he met Owen Wilson, who, along with his brothers Luke and Andrew, collaborated with Anderson on a short film called Bottle Rocket. Twelve minutes in length, shot in black and white, and viewable on YouTube, it is about two immature young men planning a robbery. Okay, one more thing we need to discuss. Gotta come up with a getaway strategy, just in case somebody's tailing us or even chasing us, as the case may be. You think we're going to be chased? That's a good question. No, I don't think we're going to be chased. I'm just being hypocritical now. But there's an advantage to having a plan. We know where we're going. You say the person behind us doesn't know where he's being taken. We know all the stops, all the lights, all the turns. We're always one step ahead. While Anderson never intended it as such, the short ended up serving as the basis for his first feature film. And even though it is a cliche to say this about future filmmakers, you can see the emergence of a promising and unique talent. That's not just my opinion. Four years after Bottle Rocket was released, none other than Martin Scorsese declared it to be one of the best films of the 1990s. However, not everyone saw it that way. In fact, very few people did see Bottle Rocket. Part of the reason for that was because when Columbia Pictures screened the film to test audiences, the results that came back were the worst in the studio's history. Audiences stayed away. But happily, Anderson survived the scare and Bottle Rocket displays many things that have come to be his trademarks. Bewildered young men, innocent but perceptive women, idiosyncratic dialogue, narrative detours, fluid camera movements, immaculate framing and an eclectic soundtrack. Bottle Rocket was followed by Rushmore, and it was there that Anderson hit the unique vein that he has been mining ever since. The films begin in similar ways. We are often swiftly introduced to a rather eccentric young male. That male will regularly communicate with others via notes, often handwritten on paper that is very rarely white. From this, we can see that the act of writing is a very big deal in Anderson's films, more of which later. The character then reads these notes and delivers his dialogue in a manner unexpectedly free of emotional investment. At most, the prevailing feeling that the character emits is mild apprehension. He is apprehensive because he fears the world might erupt into chaos at any moment. In other words, 
The worlds Anderson creates for his characters are often about to spin gracefully out of control. I say gracefully because visually, Anderson has everything under control. His preference is to place his camera head on to the scene. So instead of the typical over the shoulder shot that you get during dialogue, his characters almost address the camera directly. This technique has another effect. Whether the actors are in conversation facing the camera or in a group shot, the framing results in all lines receding to a single point of perspective that is dead center within the frame. Try this. Before watching any of his films, get a marker and draw a line down the middle of the screen. And then whenever you want, pause the picture and you will see that almost every one of Anderson's images is constructed symmetrically. Such precision is evident in his meticulous eye and ear for detail. When he uses pop music, it is to great effect. Think of how these songs have impacted on Rushmore. In the midnight moonlight I'll be walking along and lonely my The Royal Tenenbaums. And the life aquatic. Sempre está lá e velho voltar. Não era mais o mesmo, mas estava em seu lugar. Sempre está. More recently, Anderson has collaborated with French composer Alexandre Desplat. Desplat's music retains a fanciful element and pulsing rhythm so readily associated with Anderson's stories. But in the Grand Budapest Hotel, it carries a dark undercurrent. More of which later. Elsewhere, Anderson has collaborated with several costume designers over the years, most notably the three-time Oscar-winning Milena Cannonero. The apparel in an Anderson film is remarkably consistent and idiosyncratic. Just check out his preference for hats. The same goes for the sets. Adam Stockhausen is his regular production designer, but when watching the films, take note of the patterned wallpaper. Both the costume and production designs play right into the visual design captured by cinematographer Robert D. Yeoman, who has worked with Anderson on every one of his live action films. More than that, Anderson's overall scheme looks as though he shoots exclusively on the now extinct Kodachrome film stock. Certainly, the Grand Budapest Hotel comes in shades resembling a collection of macaroons. Which is fitting when you consider that the film's protagonist, Zero Mustafa, is a pastry chef. While his style is unique, you can trace it back to the likes of Orson Welles, Francois Truffaut, Martin Scorsese and, wait for it, Jerry Lewis. From Wells, Anderson takes the wide-angle lens. From Truffaut, it's his silken lateral tracking shots. From Scorsese, it's his use of slow motion. And from Jerry Lewis, you have a repeated motif where the exterior wall of a building has been removed so that we can see right into it as if it were a miniature doll's house. 
That dates from The Ladies' Man, which Jerry Lewis wrote, directed and starred in, in 1961. But for all the cinematic references and quotations, Anderson's visual inspirations extend beyond film. For instance, he said that he wanted the Royal Tenenbaums to resemble a cartoon from the New Yorker magazine. And that's not the only cartoon source. The comic strips of Charles Schultz's Peanuts, featuring Charlie Brown, have impacted as well. Dear Santa Claus, how have you been? Please don't get the idea that I'm writing because I want something. Nothing could be further from the truth. I want nothing. Spend your time elsewhere. Don't bother with me. I I really mean it. If you want to skip our house this year, go right ahead. I won't be offended. Really, I won't. In the hands of other directors, these references would appear as crutches, propping up weak storylines and wobbly direction. Not so with Anderson. Instead, it's all part and parcel of one of his overriding themes, artifice. The spaces and places in which he sets his stories are, of course, fictional, but Anderson makes no effort to present them as real. On the contrary, he repeatedly draws attention to the artifice of his plots, so you have stories within stories and writers writing those stories. Rushmore had high school rebel Max Fisher mounting a stage production about soldiers in Vietnam. For the Royal Tenenbaums, Anderson divided the story into chapters like a novel, while The Life Aquatic was inspired by Herman Melville's masterpiece, Moby Dick. No matter where he sets his stories, Moonrise Kingdom takes place in New Hampshire, the Darjeeling Limited trundles through India, and the Grand Budapest Hotel takes place in the fictitious European Alpine Republic of Zubroka. It all takes place in the wonderful world of Anderson's imagination. I'm not leaving. I beg your pardon? I'm not leaving. Why not? I'm frightened. Of what? I fear this may be the last time we ever see each other. Why on earth would that be the case? Well, I can't put it into words, but I feel it. Well, for goodness sake, there's no reason for you to leave us if you'd rather... Come with me. To fucking Lutz? Please. Give me your hand. You've nothing to fear. You're always anxious before you travel. I admit you appear to be suffering a more acute attack on this occasion, but truly and honestly... Oh, dear God, what have you done to your fingernails? I beg your pardon? This diabolical varnish. The colour is completely wrong. Oh, really? Don't you like it? It's not that I don't like it. I I am physically repulsed. In the credits for the Grand Budapest Hotel, Anderson lists the early 20th century Austrian author Stefan Zweig as a source of inspiration. But the writer who seems to have had the biggest influence on Anderson is J.D. Salinger. Salinger's most famous work, The Catcher in the Rye, is about Holden Caulfield, a teenager who fears for the loss of innocence that inevitably comes with growing up. Perhaps that is one of the reasons why Anderson's typical leading man is a man-child, struggling against what he sees as the impending chaos of adulthood. And yet, While gentle chaos has threatened the plots of all of his previous works, the Grand Budapest Hotel is somewhat different. There, the chaos is not about male adulthood, but a spectre that threatens everyone, man, woman and child. I mentioned Austrian author Stefan Zweig. Zweig was Jewish and Budapest's lead character, Mr. Gustav, played with expected panache but unexpected comedic aplomb by Ray Fiennes, is modelled on Zweig himself. Zweig was one of the most acclaimed authors of the early 20th century, 
but in 1942 he took his own life because he wrote he could not risk living in a hell where Hitler and his henchmen might triumph. And that is what sets the Grand Budapest Hotel above all Anderson's previous work. Yes, the sense of delight and whimsy, of buoyant naivety and optimism are still there. But what surprises is the added sense of time and place. Anderson's characters and plots are always filled with intricate backstory. But for once, we have a backdrop that exists outside of the film. We're talking about Europe between the wars. And as the plot unfolds, a deep sense of the impending Holocaust becomes clear. Such a sense of catastrophe and loss is new to Anderson's work. The size of his stories are usually small to the point of being microcosms, but Budapest breaks it out onto a far greater, if not firmly historical scale. For me, it results in his most complete and profoundly moving film. Five years from now, when critics, societies and filmmakers alike are looking back and assessing the films of this decade, I would not be at all surprised if it turns out that the Grand Budapest Hotel is regarded as one of the best.